primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The word of the Lord. So in the book of Numbers, which is this Old Testament book about the Hebrews' journey through the Sinai wilderness after they've been liberated from slavery, uh, there's this weird family feud recorded. The brother and sister of Moses, Aaron and Miriam, are said to have spoken against Moses as they've condemned Moses for marrying what the story says is a Cushite woman. Now, we're not sure if this is a reference to the woman being uh, from Cush, as in the, the nation below Egypt, or if this is an area that we know as Arabia. But the implication here is that there's some prejudice behind the family outrage. You see, nothing's mentioned negative about her character. It, it doesn't even say that she's not worshiping Yahweh God. According to the text, the only problem is her ethnic origin. Her features are different. Her Skin is darker. She's certainly not a Hebrew. This is enough not only to disturb Aaron and Miriam, but also for them to call into question Moses' authority to lead the Hebrew people. They say, has the Lord indeed spoken only to Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? This is not a call to democratic decision making here. There is no other decision here other than Moses' own marriage. No, this marriage of an ethnic tribal other is simply a family scandal to them. And so this is a call for a vote of no confidence. Well, the story goes that God hears this, and he is not a happy deity. And so beginning in verse 4, like a principal calling three kids who just got caught in a fight, God calls them into the makeshift temple tent, rolls up in a pillar of cloud, and then reads the riot act to Aaron and Miriam. What does God say? Mm, look, you two. When I call prophets like you, I use dreams and visions, and I get that you think that would be special, but you still have to decipher some things. You don't see it all. But with Moses, mm, we're tight. No mediums, no riddles. It's like we're speaking face to face. And if you knew that, you would know better than to roll up on my boy and talk trash like that. But apparently you don't. I'm out. After this episode, neither Aaron or Miriam would ever challenge Moses' authority again. In our primary reading today, our likely author of the Hebrews, Apollos, begins with a preacher's favorite word, therefore. 
If you see therefore in the Bible, it is always meant to point a big red arrow back to what was just said. So what was just preached last week? Well, to quote Reverend Layden Williams Burkis from last week, Jesus is God's most unexpected, unbelievable, and unstoppable act of radical solidarity. A solidarity that even extends to suffering. So. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, in just this sentence alone, there are a ton of religious and spiritual sounding words that we need to unpack if this is going to make any sense to us. And I think it's important for us to, to stop here and drill into this because what Apollos is actually describing here is not just a, an individual Christian, but the nature of the universal church, what the church should be like. In fact, when I look at it, I find four things, four attributes that describe the church. And I think they make the most sense when you describe them backwards. So first, confession. This word confession does not mean to admit you're wrong or to say you're sorry. Confession in this context means to publicly acknowledge, to hold fast to a belief that will likely encounter resistance. Well, what could that be like? Well, in the first century, confessing that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, would get you in trouble. Why? Because this logically means that if Jesus is Lord and has all authority, then Caesar does not. If Jesus is God, then Caesar is not, despite his claims. Believing those kinds of things in the Roman Empire would not only invite a cultural resistance, but it would also bring down a government persecution. But this kind of confessing still happens today. Recently, Dr. Will McCorkle of our church, you've probably seen him playing bass here up at the front. He's been spending a lot of time down in Texas at the border working with immigrants. But recently, he's been working with a Russian pastor at the Mexican border who has fled Russia and is seeking asylum in the United States. Why? Because the Russian Orthodox churches are actively praising Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. Not only that, but this pastor estimates that even 80 to 90 percent of Protestant churches are submitting to Roman propaganda, Russian propaganda, not because they believe it, but because they know what will happen to them if they resist in any way. And so this pastor was one of the few who dared to say that the invasion of Ukraine was unethical and incompatible with an allegiance to Jesus. Yet it was this kind of confession of Jesus' lordship that meant the Russian government would soon shut down his church and force him to flee the country. The church, according to Apollos, is meant to be confessional like that pastor. We are to be united in certain beliefs that come from worshiping Jesus, especially in the face of coercive power that kills, steals, and destroys. The second word, or phrase really here, is apostle and high priest. 
Apollos describes Jesus as our high priest. That is the way in which we have access to God and Jesus as the ultimate apostle. That is the ultimate sent one who leads the church. What does that mean for us as a church? That the ultimate authority of the church is not found in people, but in Jesus Christ. This past Sunday at the chartering service... Elders from across the presbytery laid hands on our eight new elders here. And while the symbolism of that moment was beautiful, it really was my favorite part of the service, our elders' authority does not truly come from another person in authority passing down that authority. Neither Presbyterians or Lutherans adhere to the belief known as apostolic secession, where you attempt to try to get your leader's authority traced all the way back to the Apostle Peter. It can't really be done anyway. Instead, we understand authority to operate out of a combination of God's will and your consent. Likewise, access to God never truly comes through the pastor. The baptism this morning wasn't valid because Leyden said just the right magical words. The Eucharist that we will celebrate later this morning doesn't contain the presence of Christ because I have any spiritual powers. And when we hear the assurance of God's mercy in confession, it isn't me forgiving you, it's God. I'm just repeating what is true. How does a pastor in reality have so little power because Jesus is our apostle and high priest the third word here is brothers and again in the Greek this is a gender inclusive word that means brothers and sisters siblings why is this important for our understanding as a church it means that the church is never bound by any other tie greater than that of Jesus Not tribal ties in the term of national origin, not ethnic ties in the form of racial superiority, not gender ties in the form of prescribed gender roles or sexism, not political ties in the form of the political party or politician you vote for. What ties us together is Christ. We are made one as a family because of our diverse backgrounds and sometimes in spite of those diverse backgrounds for the strengthening of the church and the means of our sanctification. How can it be both? Because our diversity is a picture of what God is capable of bringing together. But our diversity is also the means by which I can safely and graciously encounter the stories and theologies and viewpoints that I would likely not encounter anywhere else in my daily life. The fourth and final word that defines the church here is holy. Holy. Ooh. Yeah, this is a fun one. And by fun, I mean mildly traumatic for some of you. Because some of you were told about holiness, right, in some youth group once, which basically meant something about sex before marriage, spaghetti strap tops, and if you were like a Baptist, no drinking beer. And if you were like a real rural Baptist, it was like no tobacco chew. Some of you are like, yeah, I heard that. Holiness was basically synonymous with some ambiguous form of purity, 
which for some reason, likely intended, made you feeling a little dirtier after you talked about it. But I think even for those of us with a more sophisticated understanding of holiness, we still might get this wrong. Because here's what you probably already know. To be holy is to be set apart. In the Hebrew, it it literally means to be cut out. So holiness is a state of being set apart. This is accurate. But let me ask you, why? Why are you set apart? And here belies what I think is the constant misunderstanding of holiness. You see, I, I, I was told growing up that repenting from sin and holiness what was like this perpetual loop. I, I stopped sinning so I can be set apart. And I'm set apart so I can stop sinning, rinse and repeat. But holiness was never intended to be a loop. Holiness was intended to be a trajectory, a direction. Christian holiness is always connected to purpose. So why am I set apart? To participate with God in the renewal and the restoration of the world through the revealing of the kingdom of God. You see, I'm not set apart. I'm not cut out from culture so that I can stand outside of culture as a slightly less sinful person looking in on it judgingly. No, I'm set apart. I'm cut out from culture so that I can re-enter culture with a profound sense of purpose. Does this mean I need to reject some sin in my life? Absolutely. But instead of it being a pious end unto itself, it is in service to being faithful to God's purpose to reveal the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, according to our first verse in Hebrews chapter 3, don't worry, the rest are going to go much quicker. What defines us as a church? How does God view the church? That the church's worship is to Jesus and nothing else. The church's spiritual authority is found in Jesus over anyone else. The church's unity is held together by Jesus more than anything else. And finally, the church's holiness is motivated by a purpose to reveal Jesus' kingdom above all else. That's who we are. In fact, that's what Jesus has already formed. All we need to do now is live into that reality. So Apollos says then to this kind of church, this kind of church, I want you to consider. Really, in the Greek here, he says, I want you to think deeply on how Jesus is like Moses. 
Now, if you've been with us the last month or so since we've started this series, you'll remember that Apollos, because he is giving this message, having this message preached to a Jewish Christian audience, his strategy so far has been to compare familiar Jewish concepts with the person and work of Jesus. And this isn't to insult what he's comparing to Jesus. No, rather it's just to say, no matter how good you think X is, Jesus is better. So what does he reference so far? Well, however good you think scripture is at revealing what God is like, Jesus is supremely a better revelation for what God is like. However good you think angels are as a medium of God's power, Jesus is a supremely better medium of God's power. And now with Moses, the pattern holds again. However good you think Moses was as an authority for God's people, Jesus is a supremely better authority for God's people. And now this doesn't seem like probably too big of a claim for us. Like, yeah, of course, Jesus is better than Moses. But a Jewish Christian audience would have heard the phrase, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And they instantly would have recalled that family feud in Numbers 12. They would have recalled that when two people, both of whom were already recognized as prophets, had the gall to think they even had authority on par with Moses, God gave them a divine smackdown. Moses wasn't just a mere prophet. He was God's man. In fact, in established Jewish theology at the time, Moses was so revered that all you had to say was the prophet, and people would know that you were referring to Moses. And why not? Moses got to speak face to face with God. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And yet, Jesus is even somehow better than that. What else could be better? It's as if Moses could speak face to face with God. But Jesus was the actual face of God. Using an architectural metaphor, Apollos puts it this way in verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Very similar to how Apollos compared Jesus to angels. He says, look, Moses is created. Jesus is the creator. No matter what honor or glory you think is due to Moses, he's just a person. Jesus is more than that. And if that's true, think how much more honor and glory Jesus is worthy of. Likewise, look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now notice there's actually a shift here in the architectural metaphors. Instead of highlighting the difference between the created and the creator... It's now about comparing relational statuses, the difference between a servant and a son. Moses was like a servant in the house of God, but Jesus is like a son in the house of God. Moses might be the best servant, but in terms of authority, the son is in charge of the house. In other words, Jesus is in charge of the church. Okay, so that's Moses and Jesus. 
but right now you might be feeling a little left out, and you're like, okay, so where, where do I factor into all this? Because, you know, the way Apollos has crafted this argument about how much honor and glory is due to Jesus, even above the most revered figure in Judaism, you might not think there's many great things to say about me. Right? After all, in comparison to Jesus, if Moses can only be considered a servant, then what does that make us? To make things more precarious, the architectural metaphor here isn't talking about just any house, but what kind of house? The house of God. In the first century, if you were to ask a Jew where God's house was, where God was said to have resided, the only answer you would have gotten is the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the phrase house of God was what the temple was called in the Jewish books of Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. And so up until this point then, the only question of debate was access. How much access could you get to God? Who, who could be in the temple and who could be closest to the, the center of the temple, the holy of holies? The more powerful and privileged you were, the closer you got. So if Jesus is the son and Moses is the servant... Well, perhaps if I try really hard at being good, maybe God will let me live in the basement of the house of God. Or maybe if I'm really on a, a spiritual roll and God's feeling generous, maybe I can get the mother-in-law suite. I like the mother-in-law suite. It's not bad. But then at the end of verse 6, we read this. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Wait, what? We are his house? We are his house? Y'all get this. I, I, I don't want you to walk out this morning not knowing this in your heart. Because of Jesus, we have not been permitted to enter into God's presence now. Because of Jesus, God's presence has entered you. When you confess the lordship of Jesus, you then are part of God's house and the Son resides in you. Think how this parallels our story in Numbers 12, but flips the dynamic. In Moses' family feud, only one person gets to be intimate with God. Even seeing God as a friend. Even Aaron and Miriam, who are acknowledged prophets who have done great things in their life, are not considered worthy. In fact, even though they are the literal brother and sister of Moses, their challenge to Moses results in God's anger. But now, Apollo says, because of Jesus, anyone can have intimacy with God, as if God is your friend. And if you are here this morning and you feel like you have no spiritual resume to, to speak of, uh, you, you don't have this sense of religious worthiness, whatever that is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God now delights to take otherwise strangers and make them your spiritual brothers and sisters, siblings in Christ. 
oh, this is so important. Because not only should this give us a profoundly important and privileged identity, it pushes back on what I call worm theology. Worm theology says that you are just a terrible, wretched sinner. And you should be grateful for whatever scraps of mercy God throws your way. Worm theology is designed to keep you obedient by keeping you debased with the implicit or explicit reminders of how unholy you are. This is because in worm theology, the definition of holiness still revolves around that ambiguous concept of purity, about abstaining from moralistic vices and making you feel dirty when you fall short of their standards. But this is not what the preacher in Hebrews teaches. All this time, Apollos has been elevating the honor and glory of Jesus, not just to elevate Jesus, but to elevate you. To elevate you. To know who we are in Christ should not make us insecure. It should make us confident. To know who we are in Christ should not make us consider ourselves as lowly worms. It should make us consider ourselves as proud temples. Together, because of the person and work of Christ. This is who we are. May we hold fast to it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you, tech team. All right, Colin, we've got some tough ones. In situations like Russian oppression and tyranny, what is the best way to oppress systemic oppression? Wait, resist systemic oppression or oppress? Oppose. Oppose, sorry. <laughs> I wonder who texted that one in. Um, um, all right, so yeah, okay, if you're, if you're dealing with a, a systemic oppression, particularly in this case, right, powers that are way more powerful than you, right? So this is, this is true in the first century, right? You can't just like fight Rome. It's not going to end well for you. You can't take up arms against Putin in Russia. Like, it's not going to end well for you, right? And so, and also as Christians, that might not even be what we're called to do as followers of the Prince of Peace. And so how do you resist oppression? That's not for me to uh, be like, this is the best way because, well, one, I don't have the street cred, right? I've never resisted oppression in that way. So I need to be very careful to like call the, the shots. However, I, I think what you see throughout history, right, is that different Christians have said, I need to not be complicit with this. And they find ways to not be complicit with that oppression. Sometimes that is outright dangerous resistance. Sometimes that is just literally fleeing the situation and saying, I will not be partner to this. I was actually just reading about um, someone who, uh, during, during the Nazi regime, said, like, he's, he recognized, he's like, I have no power to stop this, but I'm going to record and, and study, like, all the newspaper articles in Nazi Germany, write all this down so that future generations will know what has happened here, so that justice retroactively will be remembered. And that was his act of resistance, um, which I thought was really interesting. So, yeah, it's just saying, I, finding a way to not be complicit in those things which are killing, stealing, and destroying. Well done. That was a tough one. All right. If worm theology isn't true, then how do we understand confession, naming our sin and asking for forgiveness? Yeah, this is such a good question. All right. Mm -hmm. So because I think the key thing in worm theology, worm theology rejects um, this idea. Not, they wouldn't say it explicitly, but implicitly by their teaching. They always do this. Is that Jesus is like, oh, yeah, yeah, you are forgiven, but you're still pretty terrible. Um, and, and whereas Jesus says, no, you are a new creation. You are beloved. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are like, you are this beautiful new thing in me. And so when you do sin, you're just, you're acting against your true identity. And so confession is still wonderful because you're saying, I'm acting in a way that is not who I truly am. I'm acknowledging the action, but saying that this action is not a reflection on my true state because my true state is a son or daughter in Christ. And so, yeah, I think confession is so important because it's allowing us to name the things that are against the kingdom of God, act to live differently, and then hear, hear the reminder of who we truly are. And so I'm a huge fan of confession. I find it very liberating. Uh, and it, I think actually done rightly pushes against that nature of warm theology. Fantastic. So we're out of time, but we do have one more question that's going to tie together last week's uh, chartering service and this week's message. It takes more than 10 seconds for Colin to answer this. So tune in tomorrow on Facebook Live. And, uh, oh, is this about the dirt? Yes, All yes. Right. So sneak peek of tomorrow's Facebook Live. Nice. All right. Well, friends, as the kids come on in, I invite you to stand up and join our voices together as we prepare our hearts for communion by singing the Sanctus. Oh.